Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. We're going to begin reading in verse 6 and read through verse 23. This is God's word. Please give it full, your full attention. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. As I was growing up, my father had a daily habit that bothered me. 
what he would do is he would faithfully, every morning when the newspaper came, he faithfully read the obituaries and commented on them. The obituaries were the most irrelevant portion of the paper, and his habits seemed terribly morbid to me. But, to my great dismay, I now often find myself reading the obituaries. I get my center daily times in the morning, and I'm drawn. I try to skip over them, but I'm drawn to read the obituaries, and I keep wondering why. Well, I've come up with a few logical reasons for it. One is that I live in a much smaller community now. I've lived in the suburbs most of my adult life. It's now I live in a relatively small town, and there's a chance I may know this person who's in the obituaries. That's one reason. But I think a deeper reason is that, quite honestly, death is a lot closer to me now than it was back then when I was a kid. And I think it's kind of a weird way that we older people deal with aging, is that we try to prepare ourselves for the inevitability of death by reading about the death of others. It's If you don't understand that, you will someday. (laughs) But I think there's another reason that I enjoy reading obituaries now. Well, maybe enjoy is not the right word. But the reason I read obituaries is that it does give you an insight. It's, It's kind of fascinating how you can get an insight into a person by reading about them in their obituary. You can get some insight into what their values were, what what they what their loves, their passions were, what their life was all about. You get a hint by reading their career history. You get hints about their values and their dreams by reading about their hobbies, what they love to do in their spare time. You even learn something about them by reading where to donate money in lieu of sending flowers. It tells you something about what was important to them. And certainly by reading through the lists of relationships, the survivors that they leave, you learn something about what their life was like. And I'm fascinated by that. I'm sure many of you heard about the uh, 55-year-old man named Leroy Black that passed away in New Jersey last month. First time the paper ever published two obituaries for Leroy Black. They were almost identical, except for one difference. In the first obituary, it said that he was survived by his loving wife. In the second obituary, it said he was survived by his long-term girlfriend, obviously submitted by each in competition with one another. And unfortunately... Leroy Black is known in his death for that. That's the summary of his life that people will remember. I think it's a good thing to reflect on how you're going to be remembered. Of course, we can get obsessed with that, and it can become an unhealthy thing. But I think it's good to reflect on how your life will be remembered once you're gone. We're taking a break from our study through 1 Corinthians. If you've been with us through the summer, you know that we, for many months, have been working our way through 1 Corinthians. Left off last week at the end of chapter 11, we will pick up in chapter 12, but probably not until after the new year. This fall, what I'd like to do is take a break. I often do that, take a break from a long series of studies through a book, and take another section of scripture and dig into that. And what I'd like to do for the next few weeks, next couple of months, is to dig into this section of 2 Kings. And obviously, I'm picking up midstream here, in the middle of a very long story. But I think it's a very crucial point. And My purpose this fall is to focus in on one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel, Israel and Judah, and that would be King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a godly king. King Hezekiah was a king who led one of the greatest reformations in the history of the Old Testament and New Testament church. We tend to look back to the 
1500s is one of the great periods of the church where the Holy Spirit brought reformation upon the church and restored the gospel to the church and, and restored biblical purity to the church. Well, this is really what happened during the reign of Hezekiah. It was a crucial time in an otherwise very dark period of Israel's history. The defining, as we, we look at this week and next week, I want to take some time to look at the, the historical context of Hezekiah, because you can't understand any of us, but particularly kings, great leaders. You can't understand them outside of the context of the times in which they lived. And so we're going to do that this week and next, as, next week as we look at chapter 17, as it leads up to chapter 18 and the introduction of Hezekiah. And the defining moment in the era of King Hezekiah would happen just before he came to the throne. The defining moment was the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, of course, if you're not familiar with Old Testament history, it gets kind of confusing because Israel was one nation that very quickly in its history became two nations. You had the northern kingdom, which was made up of the ten tribes to the north that uh, was called Israel, or sometimes Samaria after the capital city that they adopted. And then the southern kingdom, which was the two other tribes, particularly Judah, the dominant tribe, where Jerusalem was and where the throne and where the... um, the temple was located. So you had the two, you basically had one nation split into two nations by essentially a civil war. And the defining event to Hezekiah's reign was that he took to the throne right after the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 BC. We talk about 9-11 in this generation as being a watershed moment for our country. We kind of talk about recent history as pre-9-11 and post-9-11 because that attack has introduced us into an era where terrorism all of a sudden is the big threat to our country. Well, that's really, it's in the same category when you think of the fall of the northern kingdom to the ongoing people of God in the nation of Judah. Hezekiah was the king of Judah, but the 10 tribes had just been decimated. And as you see in this chapter, the big player on the scene was Assyria. Assyria was the rising world empire of the time. It was a vicious nation, a conquering nation. It was moving all through the Middle East and beyond, conquering nation, city-states, and nation one after another. And just to give you the immediate background, to help you understand the situation that Hezekiah came into, you have to understand that what happened was that the northern kingdom of Israel decided to rebel against Assyria. They were already under tribute to Assyria. They were already under its iron boot. And so they decided to rebel, and what they did is they went to a neighboring nation called Damascus, or Syria, and they entered into an alliance with them in order to stand against Assyria. And they tried to bring Judah into that same alliance, but King Ahaz, the wicked King Ahaz of Judah, who was Hezekiah's father, by the way, he refused to enter into the alliance. And so Syria, or Damascus, and the northern kingdom of Israel came against Judah to try to force it into the alliance, and King Ahaz appealed to the king of Assyria. He said, come. He sent him money. He said, come, deliver us from Israel and Damascus, and they did. Assyria came down and beat those two kingdoms back and spared Judah, but of course, that put Judah even more under the iron boot of Assyria. The, the, very, the next king of Israel and the very last king of Israel was Hoshea, who's mentioned at the beginning of the passage we read this morning. Hoshea decided to rebel against Assyria again, and he put through his lot in with Egypt. 
Egypt had been a great world power. He was hoping that Egypt could come and deliver Israel from Assyria. But Egypt was no place to do that. Assyria conquered, came, basically invaded Israel, decimated it. It took two years of siege, but they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, destroyed the capital city of Samaria, Samaria, took the Israelites from the northern kingdom and spread them throughout the empire. And that was the end of the northern kingdom. We never heard from it again. It was done, completely done. That's the history that precedes the reign of King Hezekiah as a newspaper might have told it or a history book might have told it. The northern kingdom of Israel had 19 kings. All of them were branded by scripture as bad kings, kings who did not serve the Lord. Eight of those 19 kings were either assassinated or committed suicide. Up to this point, in the book of second, First and Second Kings, it's really just been history, not a lot of commentary. That's what I found. That's why I, I settled on chapter 17. I said, I, I need to spend some time digging into chapter 17 because it's so unique in the history books of the, of the Bible or the, the historical narratives of the Old Testament because it stops being history and starts being commentary on history. It's the Lord's commentary on the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. And there's so much to be learned by what the Lord tells us from how he understood what happened in this dark nation. You know, it's very hard to find objective historical accounts. I, for a while, switched my major to history. I was fascinated with history. I still love history. But one of the things that was most frustrating to me as a student of history was how you had to, when you pick up a history book and you start to read, you have to learn first about the historian who wrote the book. You have to figure out what his philosophy is, his agenda is, his bias is, because it's always going to affect how he tells the story of history. Matter of fact, there's a famous old cliche that says it's the victors who write history. The ones who win the wars get to tell you what really happened, and you get their propaganda, their agenda, when you hear the history from their perspective. Well, praise God, when it comes to scripture, we have God's perspective on history. I wish there were, that God had written a book on the entire history of humanity, that we could have his interpretation of everything. But we do have his interpretation of the history of the northern kingdom of Israel, and it's right here in chapter 17. What a privilege we have to have God tell us what he was doing. You know, when the newspapers write it, when the historical books write it, they talk about this king did this, and this kingdom did that, and these people did that. But when God interprets it, he says, here's what I did. God is the sovereign Lord of history. Everything that happens, happens by his will, by his decree. And so, chapter 17 doesn't read like a history book. It doesn't read like the newspaper. Matter of fact, if you want to get to history, Assyria is such a big, dominating presence here in chapter 17, but it's really about what God is doing through Assyria. Listen to what Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, which comes from this era, he comes from this era. Listen to what Isaiah said, speaking the word of God to the people of Israel. He says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. That's his commentary. That's God saying, I was doing this. Assyria had all of its evil motivations for destroying Samaria but it was my wrath upon my people. It was my disciplining hand. It was my hand of judgment against my kingdom of Israel that was behind all of this. 
Our God is sovereign. He raises up kings and kingdoms and he casts them down according to his perfect will. Another thing I need to point out before we dig into the details is that Israel and Judah were nations. Yes, they were geopolitical nations, but they were much more than that, weren't they? They were the people of God. They were the people who were bound to the God of the universe, the creator of all things. They were bound to him by covenant. They were a theocracy ruled by God himself. Yes, he ruled through kings and prophets and priests, but God was the king of Israel, ultimately. And so Israel, as you think of the northern kingdom, the 12, 10 tribes and the two tribes, you think of them divided, that's really the divided church of the Old Testament. It was God's covenant people, those bound to him by the covenant of grace, bound to him to be his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. And so they were to be the calling in the covenant, the calling to Israel was to be the visible representation of the kingdom of God on earth. And isn't that what the church is? The church is the visible representation of the kingdom of God on earth. And so when we look for parallels, we have to resist the temptation to look at what happened, what God was doing in and through and to Israel and compare it to the current nation of Israel today in the Middle East or to compare it to America because that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the church. Israel was the Old Testament church. The church is the New Testament Israel. And so that's where the parallels are and that's where we're going to find our application. So when we're talking about the death of the northern kingdom of Israel as the visible representation of the kingdom of God on earth, when we talk about the death of Israel, we're talking about today, in today's terms, is churches and denominations that die. And what we're going to find out as we go through the reasons for death, the obituary for Israel that we have here in chapter 17 is that the causes of death for Israel are the same causes of death that we see at, at, that are very active in the church today. So according to God's perspective then, in this commentary on history we have in chapter 17, what were the causes of Israel's death? What's fascinating is as you dig into the details of this chapter is that God uses language that is very reminiscent of the book of Deuteronomy. He keeps using phrases and sentences taken directly out of the book of Deuteronomy. Now why is that? It's because the book of Deuteronomy is the book of the covenant. It's the document that summarizes this relationship that God himself established with his people. And so the reason that God uses the language of the book of Deuteronomy and the language of the covenant of grace is that he's basically laying out an indictment against Israel. Here are the ways that you have violated the covenant. As we look at the details, as we look at the charges in this chapter, they can be divided into three types. First of all, in a very foundational way, the first type of charge being brought against Israel was ingratitude for God's grace. Ingratitude for God's grace. Look at verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Does that sound familiar to you? As you think of the book of Deuteronomy, where do you hear that language in the book of Deuteronomy? It's right before the giving of the Ten Commandments. 
right before the giving of the first commandment, to have no gods before the one true God. It's introduced, the Ten Commandments are introduced with this phraseology. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you are to live this way. Therefore, I give you the law to show what obedience. And that's the way it is in the kingdom of God. It was that way in the Old Testament church. It's still that way in the New Testament church. We obey because of grace. God shows grace. And then we respond in gratitude with obedience to his will. The covenant of grace is about atonement. The covenant of grace is about the blood of a perfect sacrifice being shed in the place of those who would seek to worship the one true God. It's about redemption. It's about forgiveness. It's about reconciliation through the blood of the sacrifice. It's about deliverance from slavery to sin. It's about deliverance from death. And ingratitude produces disobedience, as we will see. It's interesting, right after the giving of the Book of the Covenant, you have the Israelites in the wilderness, delivered by God, How did they respond? Did they respond with gratitude? No. The sin that gets focused upon again and again and again is grumbling. And because they were a bunch of grumblers, they became disobedient. And disobedience became the characteristic of the Old Testament church. And ingratitude for God's grace leads to idolatry and disobedience. In verse 15, it says they despised his covenant. That's strong language if you understand what he's saying. They despised his covenant. To translate that into New Testament language in Hebrews chapter 10, it says that they trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. That's what was going on. These people who were saved by grace. Secondly, the second group of sins, the charges that you see in this chapter are charges that relate to fearing other gods. That's listed as the second cause of death at the end of verse 7. And again, let me remind you of what they were commanded back in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of the covenant. Chapter 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land of the Lord your God, of your fathers, which that he has given you to, you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. You see what he's saying here? They did exactly the opposite. Instead of wiping every trace of the Canaanite idolatry and false worship out of the land, instead they filled the land with asherim and images and worshipped the gods of the Canaanites, and they worshipped on the high places. The Asherim were sacred poles to Canaanite gods. They filled the land with them, he says. They, they put high places, which were false worship sites, worship sites to idols. They put them all through the land instead of getting rid of them. Matter of fact, the kings in Israel and Judah both were measured by whether the fact that whether they built and maintained these high places and these Asherim, or whether they tore them down. And the worst kings sacrificed their children to these false gods. 
a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, we were looking in 1 Corinthians at the issue of idolatry. And remember that idolatry was just as much an issue in the early church, in the, in the New Testament church, in the church in Corinth. And it's still a big issue in the church. Yes, we don't tend to bow down to poles and images, but idolatry is still rampant in the church because as we saw in 1 Corinthians, idolatry is looking to spiritual beings or human beings or earthly things to give you the things that only the true God of the universe should give you. Looking to someone or something instead of God for provision, protection, and satisfaction in life. And if you don't think that's a problem in the church, you're not looking very hard. The third category of charges against the people of God in the Old Covenant was that they were exchanging God's word for the ways of the world. Look at verse 8. It says, They walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings he gave them. Verse 16, and they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. Now again, this is exactly opposite to what was commanded back in the book of the covenant, back in Deuteronomy. Let me take you back to chapter 6, the first three verses. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey." And from that point, it goes on to very pointedly say, you need to diligently teach these commandments of the Lord, the word of God. You need to teach it to your children diligently day in and day out so that you do not forget the word of God, so that you do not get tempted by the world to modify, to distort, to corrupt the word of God. In Deuteronomy 7, it goes on to say that these people were to be a people holy to the Lord, a people for his treasured possession. A holy people, a set-apart people, people that stood out from the rest of the world, not look like the rest of the world. A people that were an example to the nations of what it meant to obey God's will and what it meant to be blessed for obedience. That's what they were to be. They were to be a light on a hill to the other nations. Well, this is all bad enough. Bad enough that they did not thank the Lord for his grace in delivering him. It's bad enough that they did not fear the Lord, but feared other gods. It's bad enough that they exchanged the word of God for the customs of this world. But to make it much worse, they ignored all his warnings, the grace of the Lord's warnings. Not only had the Lord God given clear warnings in the book of Deuteronomy of what would happen if they rejected him, But he faithfully and patiently sent his prophets to repeatedly warn the kings and the people, giving them opportunity over 200 years to repent. Look at verses 13 and 14. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. 
That word stubborn there in the original Hebrew is literally the word stiff-necked. And that's a, something that a farmer, an agricultural person would understand. A stiff neck made them think of the animals that refused to bow their neck, to receive the yoke, to submit to the guidance of their master. Elsewhere in scripture, it's called a hardened heart or a seared conscience. You see, it's a basic truth you need to understand that the word of God, when it's proclaimed to God's people, it never leaves the heart unchanged. The word of God has one of two effects every time it's proclaimed to God's people. It either softens the heart because the spirit of God is preparing that heart to be softened by the word so that it can be enlivened and changed and transformed, or it's hardened, one or the other. But it never leaves the heart unchanged. And the people of God in this Old Testament church heard the word of God, they knew the commandments, they heard the warnings, the prophets came to them over and over again, and they shut their ears, and they turned back to their sin, they refused to repent, and their hearts became hard. There's a very sobering description of that hardness of heart in verse 15, where it says, they went after false idols and became false. Literally, in the Hebrew, the word there is empty. It's a word that we should know well, because last year we spent a long time studying the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the same word. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Under the sun, it's all empty. It's soap bubbles. It's meaningless. That's what we saw in Ecclesiastes. And that's what happens to those who turn from the true God and worship the false gods. Those gods are empty. They cannot deliver. Only the true God can give life. They went after empty idols and became empty. They were chasing the wind. You see, idols never satisfy. Idols never satisfy. Idols don't give grace. Only God gives grace. Idols enslave. Ultimately, always idols enslave. And if you look to career, to reputation, to power, to wealth, to pleasure, for your meaning and purpose in life, for your satisfaction in life, you will end up empty. And you will end up enslaved to your false god. Idols are like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Which brings us in this passage to the final cost of that hardness of heart and that stubbornness, that stiff-neckedness. It's in verse 18. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. That, in a nutshell, is a spiritual death sentence in Scripture. To be cast out of the favorable presence of God is what that means. It's really the essence of hell. God is present in hell, but only in his wrath and his justice and his eternal punishment. But Israel... The nation of Israel was cast out of his favorable presence. But I want to remind you again that the focus here is on the corporate people of God, not so much on individuals. All this applies to you as individuals in a secondary way. But the primary application is to the church. This chapter is written to the church of the Old Testament, and it applies directly to the church of the New Testament. The primary application of today is to churches and denominations that do not learn this, his, this lesson from history and are therefore destined to repeat it. 
It's very similar to the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Warnings that their light was about to be extinguished if they did not repent. The same temptations that the church in Hezekiah's day faced are the same temptations the church faces today. So many of those bodies of people that go by the name of Christian church, so many of them have forgotten grace. They have despised the covenant of grace. They have lost the gospel. They do not understand that their life, not only their salvation, but their life is by grace alone, and they are not living in gratitude in all of their lives. Instead, they are falling into a works religion in many, many different forms, and they end up grumbling that they haven't gotten what they deserve in their minds. Churches die when they stop being gospel-centered and grace-driven. Churches die, and many are dying around us. Secondly, churches die when they seek the idols of this world instead of worshiping and glorifying the one true God. And this is happening even in churches where the gospel is being proclaimed and the truth of God's word is being proclaimed. It's still happening there because lip service is given to the one true God on Sunday morning, but throughout the rest of the week, people live for their jobs, they live for their pleasures, their hobbies, their money, their wealth, their power, their reputation. Idolatry is rampant. Thirdly, painfully true, that many that go by the name of church today are rejecting the word of God. They're modifying it to fit the customs of the world. They're compromising on unpopular truths that are found in the word of God. Now let me say this, that when the agenda and values of the church sound just like the agenda and values of the world, we are well on our way to God's judgment and being cast out as a church. There's no hope in this passage. There's no hint of repentance. Matter of fact, in verse 19, you probably notice there's a preview of Judah's judgment to come, which would come many decades later. But we're going to be focusing for the next couple of months on King Hezekiah, and there's hope there. Because our hope is in the greater son of David, and Hezekiah walked in the ways of David and the greater son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 22, it said, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, walked in the sins that Jeroboam did. Jeroboam was the first king. He set a path towards all of these sins of idolatry and rejection of God's word, and they walked in his ways. They walked in the sins of Jeroboam. But when we get to Hezekiah in chapter 18, in a couple weeks, notice what it says about him in chapter 18, verse 3. It says, he did what was right in the size of the in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his, David his father had done. David became the measuring stick for the kings of Judah and Israel because David, even though David was a sinner like you and me, his life was characterized by humility, repentance, joy in the Lord, faith and trust and obedience. And Hezekiah, like David, will point us to the greater son of David that the covenant of grace promised. Son of David would one day come to conquer all of our enemies, both physical and spiritual, 
and establish an internal kingdom where there is no sin, there is no corruption, there is no lie, there are no false gods, only the one true God and his glory and us enjoying it forever. Jesus Christ is the perfect son of David, the one who kept the terms of the covenant, not only kept the terms of the covenant and the law of the covenant, not only kept it perfectly, but he fulfilled the covenant of grace. He became the means of grace and forgiveness by shedding his blood on the cross. He hung there and bore the wrath of God that our sins deserve, all of our idolatry, all of our rejection of his word and his warnings, all of our lack of repentance. He died for it on the cross. He paid for it in full and then granted us, through his resurrection, new life, reconciliation with God, and joy forever. The judgment that our ingratitude, our idolatry, and our rebellion deserves has already been poured out upon him. And the bottom line is that those who worship false gods become false. Those who worship empty gods become empty. But those who worship the true God Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, our Savior, our Redeemer, those who worship him become like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's true religion in contrast to all the false religion that Israel fell prey to. It is my prayer, and I hope it's your prayer too, that there is never an obituary, an obituary written about Oakwood Presbyterian Church because Oakwood will persevere in trusting in the Lord and serving the Lord and bowing before his word until he comes again. May we remain faithful until he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those godly men in scripture like Hezekiah, like David, who lived by the covenant, who trusted in the terms of the covenant that were fulfilled in the greater son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we remain faithful. May we always live dependent upon the grace. May we always be gospel-centered in every aspect of our ministry so that grace drives our worship and our service and our obedience. May we be delivered from the false gods, the idols of our age to live in trust and dependence upon you alone. And may we remain faithful to your word. May we resist the temptation to modify your word, to corrupt it, to twist it, to fit with the customs of our day. And Lord, we utterly depend upon you to do this work of grace within us. We bow a knee to Christ, the one true king, and we serve him as his servants. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.